0: Hi, I'm Christine and I'm Alan we'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week
1: our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful
0: so now we invite you to join us as we together listen,
1: listen for, for the, the,
0: word. the word Hi, everyone and welcome to our podcast today we are still in the book of Matthew we're in chapter 14 verses 22 through 33 and this is an episode that takes place right after the one we did last week on the feeding of the 5,000. So I'm going to have Alan take it away.
1: All right. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson this week focuses on an episode, the walking on the water, that is parallel in Mark's gospel. But as we discovered a couple of years ago, the Revised Common Lectionary doesn't actually include it in the reading for that day in the year of Mark. And you may recall that that um, part of the reason is that in that in Mark's version of the walking on the water, he makes perhaps one of the harshest statements about the disciples' lack of understanding in his whole gospel. At the end of um, the walking on the water when Jesus steps in the boat and the, and the, the storm ceases, um, Mark says simply, They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, in other words, the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened, and as I mentioned a couple of years ago, you know, people whose people whose hearts are hardened are unbelievers. I mean, they're they're the ones who have rejected the message. So this is a very harsh statement that that Mark makes about the disciples, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Revised Common Lectionary leaves it out because of that. Um, yeah. we talked about it in in our in our um, podcast, but um, anyway, this is the only place you know. This is the only place where we have this, um, you know. Um, this at least this version of the story, <clears throat> we've mm-hmm. seen it. We've seen it in some of the other gospels.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, very good. All right, so moving on.
1: Yeah, so we've already seen that Matthew has a different view of the disciples as a whole. You know, in in Mark's gospel, we joked about how um, Christie's students were were talking about those clueless disciples. You know, and and that seems to be the impression that you get in Mark. But in Matthew, they're people of little faith, the oligopistoi. But they're not entirely clueless um, in, and in Matthew's version of Jesus walking in the water we see a bit of both we see their little faith as well as their human weakness now
0: and I, I agree with that I, I thought the human weakness really came through mm-hmm. in, when reading it mm-hmm.
1: yeah well, I mean, they're, 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 they're naturally afraid because of the storm. They think Jesus is a ghost because it's not something that they would have expected. You know, Peter is walking on the water and he, he gets afraid because of the, uh, the, the, the storm that's going along. You know, these are all human factors and yet, you know, we see, we see faith on the part of all the disciples. <clears throat> and so, um, and in fact, you know, um, Matthew's the only one um, who reports Peter's adventure or misadventure on the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, mm-hmm. could, we could construe it both ways, I think. Um, right. And um, I, I say that with the caveat that some people think that perhaps this story about Peter walking on the water is um, taken from the tradition in John 21, where mm-hmm. they see Jesus on the shore and Peter swims, jumps in the water and swims to Jesus mm-hmm. after the resurrection. So some people think that this is just a version of that story. But anyway, Matthew is the only one that has this particular version of Peter's walking on the water. And one another thing that's different from, from between Matthew and Mark is that at the conclusion, um, the disciples confess him to be the son of God for the first time
0: right. in
1: Matthew's gospel. And this is kind of jumping the gun a bit, because, you know, in Mark's gospel, the flow of things lead up to the big confession mm-hmm. of Jesus as the Messiah in, in at Caesarea Philippi. Right. And right. Uh, after that, we have, you know, Jesus heading toward the cross. And so this is a very, this is a distinct difference between Matthew and Mark.
0: You know, Alan, as you're talking here, it came to mind, as I'm thinking about this humanness of the disciples, because that really came through when I read it, and I, I, got thinking about the um, Matthew's audience, and really the reputation of the disciples at the time. I mean, were they, cons- they were they kind of considered above, or or not failing of of humanness? I.
1: Well, I mean, you see, I think you see a little bit of both. You know, you see in the Book of Acts where they're held in high regard. But, you know, if we, if we read between the lines in Paul's letters, we see that there are people who are opposing Paul at every turn. And, um, um, you know, I, I don't think uh, their authority was just uh, a given. I don't think their authority as apostles was automatic. I think within the church, uh, they had, uh, a, and, and the communities that were under their influence, they had a great deal of influence,
0: mm-hmm. but,
1: um, uh, uh, and a great deal of authority and respect, but um, that didn't necessarily translate into other groups.
0: All right. Well, thank you. <clears throat> Moving yeah, on. <laughs> yeah.
1: So now one of the questions we might, might address is the, is the question of where this story came from. And as I mentioned, the fact that John 21, 7 and 8 tells a similar story about the disciples being on the water and Peter jumping in to go see Jesus um, Raises the question of where this story came from. Is it a piece of oral tradition that Matthew has reshaped? That's a possibility. Uh, or is it just something? Is it something that Matthew composed? Is it a story that Matthew composed? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we can really decide. Uh, I'd say that New Testament scholars are probably divided on that question.
0: Okay. So I think my, you know, the big question is: Is it a authentic story? Does it? Did it really happen?
1: Well, I mean, we know that people don't walk on water, right? So. Right. So again, <laughs> yeah. How do
0: you make sense of it, right. right?
1: So in the in the in the course of trying to make sense out of this, options have included that this was an hallucination on the part of the disciples, or that Jesus projected his sort of his ethereal double to reassure the disciples and and um, um, the 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 parallel or the or the the um, comparison here is the ph- phenomenon of bilocation reported for some Christian saints—that they could be in two places at one time. Or, you know, the, the the common common one is that Jesus was actually walking on the shore. So either it was an error of perception on the part of the disciples, or it was an error of translation. You know, the, the problem is that um, if it if it if the the. The translation was supposed to read by the water instead of on the water. Jesus was walking by the water on the shore Mm -hmm. instead of on the water. Um, That would require the dative, and we don't have the dative. So I'm not so convinced about that. Many in this day and time see it as a projection from the post-Easter community, either of an actual story after the resurrection, like the story in John 21, or that the church created this story as a teaching lesson about faith and discipleship. And as with many scholars, Davies and Allison conclude that as historians, we know of no criterion by which to resolve this riddle.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I think that's a go. true statement. You know, I mean, people don't walk on water. There's no way to verify it. You know, by the strict canons of of, of historiography. But at the end of the day, I mean, um, I, I'm with Davies and Allison. They point to the background in the Hebrew Bible where only God has authority over the wind of the waves, and they see it, therefore, as a demonstration that the powers of the deity have become incarnate in God's Son. And so it's it's a focus, you know, the walking on the water, right. as in other Gospels, focuses on Jesus as um, someone who is more than just a man.
0: Right, right. Um, now, our Reformers... I'm really going to focus on um, the faith. Right. This is a story about faith. Right. And I think you're going to pl- talk about that later, too, yes. perhaps. Yes. But I think we first kind of need to go and take a look at this um, kind of verse by verse.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Matthew opens the story with the first mention of the disciples going anywhere without Jesus. You recall that despite their commissioning to go in the missionary discourse of Matthew 10, Matthew never tells us anything about them going anywhere. And so here in verse 22, we, we read, immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Mm-hmm. Now, most English translations translate the verb anankadzo with he made them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the verb is much more forceful than what that translation conveys. You know, he made them get in the boat. I mean, that's, I, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think insisted is a better option. Uh, Phillips and the Message and the New Living Translation use that. Uh, the King James Version, the American Standard Version, use he constrained them to get in the boat. Mm-hmm. I think that brings out the forcefulness of this verb. Or um, the Geneva Bible and the New American Standard ver- Bible use compelled. He compelled them to get in the boat. And I think mm-hmm. one insisted or constrained or compelled, those are all better options than just simply he made them because that's just that's just a weak phrase in English. It doesn't really yeah. con- convey the forcefulness of the verb anonkanzo.
0: Uh, Calvin picks up on that as well, I Mm -hmm. thought was really interesting. And of course, he's not working with his English version, so he's he's seeing the forcefulness of this word.
1: Yeah. Now, why Jesus insisted that they get in the boat and and go without him is an open question. And Mm -hmm. I would say perhaps to set up the epiphany that was to follow, you know, with his walking Mm -hmm. on the water to them. Mm -hmm. But however we answer the question, it's notable that unlike the previous boat and storm scene in Matthew 8, 23 through 27, that's the scene where Jesus is in the boat with the them, sleeping, mm-hmm. and they wake him, and he calms the right. sea. Jesus, the one who is God with us, according to Matthew, and who promises at the end of the gospel to be with them until the end of the age, is not actually physically present right. with the disciples during this storm scene. Right.
0: Right. And boy, you, you kind of want to know more there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I really do. I want to know why. What was he thinking? What was he doing? But again, I think all those questions are part of even the broader, broader question of why the story is here anyway. Right, right, right. What, right. And what what I think, I think so that's
1: it. really the direction to take with it is why the right. story is here anyway. Yep.
0: Right. Um, so moving on.
1: So then as in Mark's gospel, here Jesus dismisses the crowd and then he went up on the mountain by himself to pray in Matthew fourteen twenty three, And Matthew emphasizes that Jesus was there alone, not only by revising Mark's wording, he adds idion to the statement that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. So he went up by himself to pray. But he also repeated that he was there alone. Now, interestingly, this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus withdraws to pray to God. And actually, the only other time we read of Jesus praying in Matthew's Mm -hmm. Gospel is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is strange because, um, especially in Luke's account, you know, we get the impression that Jesus was doing this all the time. Mm -hmm. um, And especially in... um, uh, Luke 516 Luke says that Jesus would slip away to deserted places and pray and and the 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 wording of it can uh, in the Greek texts, clearly implies that this was something he did uh, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. This was this mm-hmm. was his pattern, and there there are a number of other references to Jesus praying in Luke's gospel. So this mm-hmm. is interesting that, you know, some people want to focus on the praying part, and maybe so, maybe that's right. Maybe that's a that's right, given the fact that Matthew mentions it. But I find it interesting that on a whole, Matthew doesn't really focus on Jesus praying as much as the others yeah. do.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting point. All right, so then what happens while he's up praying?
1: So Matthew sets up the disciples' situation on the water. Um, In verse 24 he says, By this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from land, for the wind was against them. And that the boat was said to be battered, and the verb is basanidzo, likely reflects Uh, Matthew's instructive purposes, in other words, his focus on discipleship here, because it's a word that, with few exceptions in the New Testament, refers to something that troubles humans, not Mm -hmm. something that troubles a thing like water. Normally, it's, it's, basanidzo is used for that which troubles humans. Mm -hmm. And so the implied focus is on the disciples and their experience of the storm. The idea is that the fact that Matthew uses this strong verb, basenizo, um sort of reflects the idea that, that not only was the water <laughs> troubled, but so were the disciples.
0: Mm, that's, that's cool. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, far from land in the new RSV translates, Stadius Paulus Apotesques Apaikin. And, and the, literally, they were, they were separated from the land by many stadia. And a stadion was the equivalent of 600 feet or approximately one-eighth of a mile. Uh, and most English versions go with something similarly vague as the new RSVs far from land. The RSV tr- attempts something more pers- specific when they say that, that they were many furlongs distant from the land, which might be helpful if we still knew that a furlong was about an eighth of a mile.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not very helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if we knew that a furlong was was about an eighth of a mile, that would be helpful. But it's it's hard to really come up with a, a decent translation on that one.
0: Right, right. <laughs> um, and so then, how does the story continue from there?
1: Well, as in Mark, Matthew reports that early in the morning he came walking to them toward them on the sea, and um, again the English versions attempt to translate tetarte. Defulaque nuktas, literally, in the fourth watch of the night, and that the translations range from that literal in the fourth watch of the night. The Geneva Bible, the King James, the American mm-hmm. Standard, the Revised Standard, the New American Standard, the New New American Bible, and the ESV do that. Um, uh, and interestingly, the New Century Version and the Good News Translation translated into between three and six o'clock in the morning, which was the fourth watch of the night. Um, So some of them take the literal route. Some uh, go figuratively. Uh, Tom Tom writes um, New Testament for anyone, uh, New Testament for everyone, translates it at the very dead of night. And then you've got the vague effort of the NRSV, you know, that just says early in the morning, or the NIV shortly before dawn. I don't know why they say shortly before dawn. I mean, three a.m. is not yeah. shortly before dawn, right? Right, right,
0: right. <laughs> um,
1: and and to basically to outright guesses. So the new yes. New Living Translation and the Holman Christian Standard Bible say about three a.m. I don't know where they
0: right. Why did they
1: ah. Why did they latch on three as opposed to four or five? And and, the, ca- and the same thing with the Living Bible and and Gene Peterson's The Message about four a.m. You know, I guess they just kind of wow. Well, to time.
0: Calvin, Calvin, Calvin jumps into this. He says three hours before sunrise.
1: Mm. So he thinks 3 a.m.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, that'd be my guess, 3 a.m., especially in that part of the world, right? 3 a.m.
1: <laughs> well, and of course, part of the difficulty with translation is that we no longer know about the watches of the night. But I would prefer something that makes it clear that we really have no idea what specific time it was other than it was between three a.m. and six a.m., and so perhaps Tom writes at the very dead of night in the NTE <laughs> in the New Testament for everyone is is the best. I don't know here because right. you know it makes it clear that it was it was dark and mm-hmm. um, yeah. I don't like right. NIV because it says shortly before dawn. Well, shortly before dawn, it's already starting to get light.
0: Right. And I think I think the emphasis there is that it's. It's dark. It's been dark a long time. There's always fear and darkness, and then then the storm's coming up. So trying to paint for us really a situation that is terrifying.
1: It was a dark and stormy night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So then the statement that Jesus came toward the disciples, walking on the sea, peripaton epitain thalassan, is again, in my judgment, quite an understatement. Again, this is quite an understatement. It's almost like the feeding of the five thousand. You know, we're not really told how Jesus works the miracle. You know, the gospels just say that Jesus was walking on the on the on the sea, without really commenting on it further, which is kind of astounding, almost really, um, because in the Jewish context, only God has the power to walk on the sea. Uh, we find some parallels in Job 9.8, especially in the Septuagint translation mm-hmm, and Psalm mm-hmm. 77.19. Now, Ulrich Luz observes, observes that the texts in the Hebrew Bible like these are not direct parallels because they either talk about the taming of the primal ocean at creation. That's what Job mm-hmm. 9.8 is talking about. And some, there's some other passages that do that. Or the parting of the Sea of Reeds at the Exodus. That's what Psalm 77.19 talks about. I would still argue that the general thought world of the Hebrew Bible that insists that only God has the power to command the wind and the waves serves as the primary conceptual framework within the gospel, within which the gospel tradition was operating. And Lutz goes to this um, history of religions approach, and I don't know how familiar you or or any of our listeners are with the history of religions school of biblical studies that was um, popular in the early 20th century, but... Excuse me. They um, they felt like the way to understand the New Testament was to find any kind of parallel anywhere in any kind of religion anywhere, and and, and you know uh, so for example Lutz thinks that. Um, there's a Buddhist Jataka story, which, which are stories about the Buddha's previous lives before he was the Buddha. Uh, so there's a Buddhist Jataka story about a disciple of the Buddha walking on water while he was meditating on the Buddha that serves as, a, or stories like the Gilgamesh epic, that serve as the closest right. parallels to this gospel story. And right. in my opinion, the, the problem with the history of religion's um, um, approach to the New Testament is that they equated parallels or potential parallels I should say with influence on the new testament so just because some you know there's some some parallel in a buddhist text somewhere doesn't necessarily translate into influence and that that's that's a bit of a stretch um, and of course lutz must must admit that the buddhist atakas while they preserve earlier materials exist in a collection from the 5th century C.E. of the Common Era. So I was you know.
0: going to say that, right? It, yeah. that's a later development. Yeah. yeah, I've never, having taught world religions, um, I I think you could talk about maybe some influences from some of the Western traditions. For example, the Epic of Gilgamesh that you talked about. Clearly, that's a, a story that has great parallelisms with Noah's Ark. But you can't go. I just don't think you can go all the way to yeah. Buddhism no, and, and I don't claim think so that. As, yeah, is you related. need to
1: stick with the ancient Near Eastern world, at least. Right. But one of the yeah. one of the other flaws is that many of the parallels, quote unquote, that were adduced by by these scholars working in this approach really could not be reliably dated before the New Testament, and so therefore we, you really could not demonstrate influence on the New Testament.
0: Right. So right. Um,
1: I I'm gonna I'm gonna say that uh, I think. The Hebrew Bible uh, that insists that God only God has the power to command the wind and the waves is the primary conceptual framework within the gospel, to, within which the gospel. Yeah, I is agree. I
0: here. agree, and I think that people hearing the story would would see, would hear that. I yeah, think they would.
1: So again, within the biblical conceptual world, the response of the disciples is one that makes sense. When they saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, "It is a ghost," and they cried out in fear. And so, when we see Scenes like this, which is really essentially a theophany scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, fear is the customary response to a revelation of God. And in a lot of places, you know, part of the right. problem was that the, the, the common wisdom was no one can see God and live. And so right. oftentimes when you right. have theophanies in the Old Testament, uh, people are like, oh my gosh, I've seen the face of God and yet I'm still alive.
0: <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. Now,
1: phantasma or ghost is not a word that's common in the biblical literature. It's only found in this story in Matthew and Mark in the New Testament, and it's only found in the Wisdom of Solomon 1714 in the Septuagint, which speaks about the terrors of those who are lawless and go astray Mm -hmm. and basically says, um, you know, throughout the night they, uh, they... what came upon them was from the recesses of powerless Hades, and they all slept the same sleep and were driven by monstrous specters or ghosts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so the idea is, those who go astray, those who are the lawless ones, um, they may they may appear to be in power, but they actually suffer from their own torments. And, and phantasma is used there in, in the Septuagint. But that's the only place, only three times in, in uh, the Septuagint and the New Testament combined. It's, it's much more common to speak of apparitions like the one the disciples thought they were mm-hmm. seeing as spirits or pneumata. Right. And whether the reference is to angels or to demons as unclean or evil or different spirits is, mm-hmm. determ- is determined by the context. But it's much more commonplace to, to refer to those kinds of apparitions as spirits.
0: So, it, what an interesting choice of words mm-hmm. there. It sounds like Mark probably did this first, but mm-hmm. uh, clearly they're making a difference between this and this pneumata, right? right?
1: Right, right. So then Jesus' response, as we have seen every time we've discussed this story in each gospel, is significant. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, in Matthew 14, 27. Now, while it's clear on the surface of things that Jesus is identifying himself to the frightened disciples that's that's the first uh you know level of meaning here he's not the ghost they think him to be but he is jesus there's another sense in which this is an epiphany or a theophany or a christophany scene by walking on the water jesus has displayed the power that only god has and so his statement ego i me is meant to be heard as an echo of god's self-identification as the one who is mm-hmm. and we think of exodus 3 14 um, I am that I am, um, literally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ehyeh, which is the Im- perfect of haya, the verb to be. Uh, but more directly, we have um, ani hu, oftentimes in the Masoretic text. I am he, and it's often translated in the Septuagint with this phrase, ego, ego I uh, me. Mm-hmm. And we see this uh, particularly in 2nd Isaiah. You know, I am the, I am he, I am your redeemer. I am the one who does this. I am he. And so that's a phrase that, that is common in second Isaiah. But it's clear, I think that Jesus has demonstrated God's presence and power by doing what only God can do. And in Mark's gospel, in fact, this is the whole point of the story. And so in Mark's gospel, the story concludes with, then he got into the boat with him and the wind ceased. And that's it. That's, that's the end of the story basically.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah.
1: Because that's the point. The point of the story is to focus on Jesus in Mark's gospel.
0: Right, in Mark's gospel, but not Matthew necessarily. Not Matthew.
1: No, Matthew has revised the story to focus not only on Jesus, but also on the disciples and on discipleship as a theme. And this, you know, I've commented about how how Matthew's not my favorite gospel. I do like the theme of discipleship in Matthew. I think, I think mm-hmm. Matthew has some really good things to share with us about the theme of discipleship. And so mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. That's a helpful contribution. I just, mm-hmm. I'm, such a, I'm such a big fan of kingdom of God language in the gospels. I don't like what Matthew does with the kingdom of God. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, but, but
1: I would say that this was his motivation for adding the story about Peter asking Jesus to prove that he it is he by commanding him to walk on the water which is again only found in Matthew among all the gospels and it's not even found it's not found in Thomas it's not found in any of the other apocryphal gospels it's wow. only found in Matthew
0: that is fascinating though yep. that no one else brings this up yep. it does make you wonder if yep. Matthew is the author
1: yes it does yes it mm-hmm. does Now, while Peter's request has typically been interpreted as a demonstration of his faith, of course, mixed with doubt when he falters, Mm -hmm. I think Gene Boring in his commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible has a point when he objects that this identifies faith with spectacular exceptions to the warp and woof of our ordinary days. In other words, faith means doing things that we don't normally do, like walking on the water. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he goes on to say that the typical approach you know, that, that, you know, this reflects Peter's faith seems to say that if Peter had had enough faith, he could have walked on the water. So that the message to us then is if we had enough faith, we could overcome all our problems in some sort of spectacular way. But in, but instead, Boring suggests that the message we ought to read in this episode is that if he had had enough faith, he would have believed the word of Jesus that came to him in the boat as mediating the presence and reality of God, and he would have stayed in the boat. <laughs> Which, that's, yeah, that's very different no from what point. you normally hear.
0: Yeah, that's a real point.
1: Yeah, and so, uh-huh. so Boring concludes that faith is not being able to walk on the water. Only God can do that. But daring to believe in the face of all evidence that God is with us in the boat, made real in the community of faith, as it makes its way through the storm, battered by the waves. So the idea is if Peter really had faith, he would have believed Jesus when he said, it is I, take heart, don't be afraid, and he would have stayed in the boat.
0: Right, right. Oh, that's really good. (laughs) Isn't that Uh, interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I I tell you that the Reformers are going to pick up on this faith aspect of this, actually, but uh, they didn't say that. They're actually pretty critical. But they did ask the question, and I'll talk about, about this more, why does... What does it mean that 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 Peter falters mm-hmm. what does it mm-hmm. why what is the cause of that sure. so they are asking that question
1: well and boring borings in his conclusion he he addresses that he says that Peter's problem was not that he took his eyes off Jesus but that he wanted proof of the presence of Christ and so left the boat in the first place mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he kind of presents it as kind of uh, almost as if he's testing jesus you know P- Jesus says it is i and and you know. When, when Peter says, if it's you, command me to come, you know, it's like he's setting up his own test to right. prove it. Yeah. Right. So, no, but,
0: but yeah, go ahead. Let's move on.
1: Yeah, so the story definitely relates the mixture of faith and doubt that is the nature of discipleship in Matthew. And this is something that I really like about Matthew's gospel is the way he has this very down-to-earth and very realistic, um, um, almost compassionate, perhaps, uh, uh, way of portraying discipleship. And so, in this episode, basically, Peter is the typical disciple, right? Someone who's tempted to, to leave the boat <laughs> and try to walk on water, uh, as opposed to staying with the boat and with the community. And we mm-hmm. should note that when Peter asked Jesus to command him to come to him on the water, Peter does address Jesus as Lord, which is only those who have faith do in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. So he, he he's you know we see we see a reflection of his faith. And when Jesus replied simply, come, Matthew tells us that Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus, in verse 29. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, this might seem strange. I mean, it's strange enough that Jesus is walking on the water, but now wait, Peter's walking on the water? What's up with that?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: But but I think we can say, uh, with Davies and Allison, that here, as elsewhere, Jesus shares his power or his exousia, his authority, with his disciples. We saw that. Um, in Matthew eleven we're going to see that at the end of the gospel in Matthew twenty eight eighteen, when he commissions them to go out and make disciples. Mm-hmm. So Jesus does share his power, his authority with his disciples. And, and perhaps we can see that that's what's going on with Peter mm-hmm. here.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So the, again, that discipleship is something practiced by those who are of little faith, or oligopistoi, is demonstrated by Peter's faltering. And Matthew, discipleship, even after the resurrection, is always a matter of the mixture of faith and doubt. And while it is commonplace to observe that Peter faltered when he took his eyes off Jesus and noticed the strong wind, um, I think he faltered because he became frightened. And and I kind of like the way the fact that the New RBC translated that, you know, um, he he, uh, noticed the strong wind. And notice yeah. is a little bit kind of plays down that idea. I think a little bit right. of Peter taking his eyes I off agree. Jesus. He, he, I mean, he couldn't help but notice the strong wind, right? He's in the right. middle of the storm, right? And, and and I don't think it's I I don't really see see the point of this as Jesus, as Peter took his eyes off Jesus. I don't th- I don't think that's the case. Because and even even grammatically, the focal point of the gr- grammar of that of the text in this point is not that he took his eyes, not that he noticed the wind, but that he. Became frightened. That's the main verb. Yeah. And yeah. so, and this makes sense because in the Bible, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but rather fear.
0: And that that's really important there, uh, because our minds are faith and doubt, mm-hmm. but fear. This all makes sense. This. Yeah. Yeah. And it has a. It ha- frightened. It's such a, a stronger concept anyway than doubt, mm-hmm. right? I mean, right? It, that's something that that takes you to the core doubt. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to articulate it, but, but this is kind of an important, um, I guess an important nuance. A doubt is something that, that may it. be
1: that may be troubling. A doubt is something that may you may right. wonder about, but but being frightened, yeah, like you said, that really gets to the core of who you are and affects yeah. you. Yeah, and, and and I would say from just from my experience, I've, I've seen that as well. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but rather it is fear.
0: Right. It, oh, it's really. I could, you could do the whole sermon on that. That would be really. I've done several, you know? actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, Alan's like, I've done several, and and what a good, um, what a good way to introduce that concept to yeah, your congregation. Yeah yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So then, when Peter began to sink, he cried out using a language of Psalm sixty-nine, uh, verse um, one. Uh, it's verse two in the Septuagint. In the English version, it's verse one. Lord, save me. In, in Matthew fourteen thirty, and we see this also reflected in the earlier boat and storm scene when Jesus is in the boat with them and he they wake him up and say Lord save us you know so it's mm-hmm. a very similar yeah. language and in response Matthew says that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him saying you of little faith and there's that that word oligopistos uh, why did you doubt and again, rescue from the waters is something that one looks to God to accomplish in the Hebrew Bible, now, and this is something that's clearly brought out in the Psalms.
0: Now here it says, "Why do you doubt?" Is is that word the same? Then is that the same concept of fear, or is that a different word?
1: Doubt, the, the the word here is distazo, and it's it's um it's it's a it's a, um, a weaker term than the one we okay. would normally think of as oh, okay. like unbelief or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay, and that's, that's interesting because I think there's a, a tendency to see this as kind of a, a negative response of Jesus. Like you, maybe from Mark, right? You little faith, why did you doubt me instead yeah. of, why, why did you doubt here I am? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's some and, and, and here's there. here's And I think oh. here's a
1: live question. Was, was the doubting from the fact that Peter began to sink or was the doubting from the fact that Peter asked to get out of the boat in the first place?
0: Mm. that's a good point right because why didn't he just trust
1: that when jesus said you know right don't be afraid you know take heart it is i don't be afraid why didn't peter just trust the word of jesus right then right right
0: because it's peter (laughs) (laughs) right right so i think it's an
1: open question as to you know what the doubt refers to does the doubt refer to the fact that he was sinking Uh, or does the doubt refer to the fact that he got out of the boat in the first place
0: Right. Good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, so I think in this respect, the whole story about Peter is meant by Matthew to be instructive for the church and for individual disciples. Davies and Allison called it a little parable about Christian faith in the face of difficulties. I don't know about the language of little parable, but, you know, it's a story that illustrates, you know, the fact that we're going to falter. And and, right. and faith uh, falters. That's just part of the human condition, and that's okay. Right. That doesn't exclude one from discipleship. It doesn't exclude one from the, the community right. of disciples. That's just part of, you know, to borrow the, the, the title of, of Watchman Knee's book, The Normal Christian Life. That's just part of the normal Christian
0: life. Exactly, and I actually love this because how often do we Feel judged, or, 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 when we have this doubt, and here it is written into scripture so beautifully that this is part of our human and how our, often our have, reality
1: how often has it been preached that that um, you know we all exactly. not doubt we're just supposed to believe yeah
0: exactly and I, I think this is hugely important and and as I will talk about later Calvin actually picks up on this which I thought was very astute of Calvin mm. um, especially when the later Calvinists would be the last ones to allow doubt into the, sure. the Christian life. Yeah, yeah that's
1: cool. Yeah. yeah. So then, as in Mark's Gospel, Matthew tells us that when Jesus and Peter returned to the boat, the wind ceased. And again, we should res- recall that not only walking on the water or rescue from the water, but also stilling the storm is something that only God can do in the Hebrew Bible. And there's a number of references from the Psalms. From that perspective, then the conclusion of the story, which is a very different one from Mark's account, makes perfect sense in Matthew's gospel. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God," in Matthew fourteen thirty-three. As Davies and Allison point out, Matthew's audience has been informed previously about Jesus' status as the Son of God, right? I mean, he's, he, mm-hmm. he, he, the, the infancy narratives bring this out. Um, um, the, the voice, the divine voice at Jesus' baptism brings this out. So, so the audience of Matthew's gospel already knows that Jesus is the Son of God. But this is the first place where the disciples themselves make that confession. And some people yeah. will discuss perhaps whether or not this is too early in the gospel story, in the story of Jesus, in comparison with the confession at Caesarea Philippi. Because it kind of robs the thunder from the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi when they all uh, worship him as son of God and and call him truly, call him the son of God here.
0: What do you think? Is this too early? Is this a problem with the narrative?
1: Well, I think this reflects Matthew's... Um, Effort to paint the disciples in a much more positive light than than you find in Mark. You know, remember in, yeah. in Mark's gospel, it concludes with, um, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, right. but their hearts were hardened. I think right. Matthew couldn't couldn't stomach that. I think Matthew's right. version, Matthew's view of the disciples and discipleship couldn't, that, 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 that was inconsistent with Matthew. Right. And so Matthew changes it completely to make it out to where they worship Jesus and they confess Him to be the Son of God, I think that's the, right. that's the work of Matthew here, trying to portray the disciples as understanding more and being more um, uh,
0: right,
1: really faithful than than it's than all... Mark does. And you know, so is it too early? I mean, Matthew doesn't think so. Obviously, uh, I think I think for Matthew, Matthew couldn't handle. The very um, almost edgy idea that the disciples' hearts were hardened and that they could not, they didn't understand about the loaves and they didn't understand about Jesus. Right,
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what Calvin in particular and what some of the other Reformers also had to say about this passage. So, Christy, uh, take it away, please.
0: Sure. I concentrated on Calvin's commentaries today. And I find it interesting because every time we have uh, one of these stories that is so well known to us, they actually... don't make their way into some of the more theological statements of these people, and so it's hard hmm. to find those references. It's very typical, or, or it'll be just in passing. So, for example, you don't find this really at all in Institutes. I think it's mentioned twice, in passing. Um, so it's just kind of how they they see these things. And same thing, I'm looking through Luther's commentaries and things, not really, um, or not commentaries as much, but but theology pieces. It just it's just not referenced. Yeah. Um, well, it's hard but, to come up
1: with it's hard to come up with theological reflection on something that's so um, out of the ordinary and so kind of right. um, um, beyond our our comprehension
0: right so we're really seeing how they respond to it in um, the commentaries and there are several themes that Calvin pulls out of this miracle um but the, the predominant um point of this, and and Calvin's opinion is that this is about faith. Mm. And I was personally surprised because I thought they would focus more on it being the miracle um, rather than faith. Although in retrospect, now that I read through it, I guess the Reformation emphasis on faith, this is a perfect example of faith.
1: Well and you uh, think about it, I mean, as you've mentioned and as you've taught me, you know, that that uh Calvin in a lot of his work is, is even his theological work is being pastoral and, and so that's that's a very pastoral approach to this passage. It is.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a couple of the themes that come out prior to this one on faith is first the discussion about obedience. Um and this has to do with the first part of the passage with the disciples not following Jesus up the mountain um, and, and him sending and Jesus sending them to the other side of the lake. And, of course, I mentioned Calvin, like Alan talked about, that this, this word, this compelled them to uh, get in the boat. He really emphasized, and that was being obedient to Jesus. Um, Calvin believes that, logically, the disciples wanted to remain with Jesus but recognized it was their job to obey. And he uses this as an example for our obedience, which is to follow God's instructions, even if it is not what we want to do. So within this discussion is the idea of providence, that sometimes God's instruction is there for reasons that we do not understand, but rather to further God's own plans. So I think it's important that Calvin's call of obedience is not because of God's judgment, but rather as a means to enable the God's kingdom.
1: I like that. I like that. I, I, you know, the, the, the language of we're supposed to do God's will, even if it's not what we want to do, can kind of sound um, a bit, I don't know, burdensome in, in our ears. But I, I like the idea of it being as a means to enable God's kingdom.
0: Yeah. Um, a second theme is the importance of prayer and the model of Jesus for prayer. So this is moving through the passage, right? Because Jesus is going up to pray. And um, in some ways, this part of the analysis um, pulled uh, Calvin away from the breadth of the story, but he wanted to discuss Jesus praying on the mountaintop as an example for others. Uh, Calvin points out, this is not to the exclusion of praying in public, what should be part of one's robust prayer practices. And of course, Calvin spent a lot of time talking about prayer and ways to pray. And this is really that Reformation emphasis on that everybody should be responsible in prayer. Everyone should be in that practice of prayer. And he writes quite an extensive um, um, prayer practices based on the Psalms. Yeah, Which is very Calvin. Sure. And and so, uh, this is just an important part of calvin as he's as he's encourages and flock to be again these these part of the priesthood of all believers right and and involved in that prayer practice so
1: when um, i think about this you know one of the things that i've always noticed about this particular time when jesus is praying is you know he's just fed the multitude Mm -hmm. and he goes off by himself to pray and then He's going to reveal himself to the disciples in a way that is very unique. You know, he's going to reveal himself by walking on the water, which is something that only God does. You know, so Mm -hmm. he's he's demonstrating his his authority, his power from God in a in a unique way. And so, Sam, you know, right in the middle of those two really high points of Jesus' ministry you have Jesus withdrawing to pray. And I've I've always often felt that that was not coincidental, you know, that there was was intentionality in that.
0: I I think so too. And I keep thinking of the the personal experience of when something like that happens and that necessary discussion with God and that reflection needed. Partly it's partly to re-energize, but it's partly just to be in that space of thankfulness um, that, well, for me, for me, oftentimes yeah. it's
1: it's it's about getting my head on straight and making sure right. you know that I'm in tune with, with or ho- hoping or trying to align myself and tune myself in with what God is doing,
0: there and and
1: not not necessarily my my purposes.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right, yes, exactly, exactly. So I think that's, I I think that's an important thing that Calvin picks out of there. Yeah. Um, and and I didn't really read anyone else that was focusing on that. But the rest of the analysis, and this is true of the Reformers as a whole, is on, on faith and the role that this incident had in strengthening the faith of the disciples. One of the main pieces here is this analysis between uh, doubt and faith. He's clear that Jesus's voice impacts only those who are called in faith to believe. The believers not the reprobate. Well, there's in that language, yeah, right, <laughs> Calvin. Right, right. Well, well, I th- I thought this was awful, of course, but it fits into Calvin's explanation of those who don't believe and yet wonder why Jesus has not saved them. Mm. You know, it's, and, and there's a lot of this that goes on. I mean, and, and Calvin looks out there and, and can't make sense of, what, why aren't these people on board? And it's it's obviously in his mind because they aren't, They aren't chosen to be Mm, so, to to be in that space. Um, And we get uncomfortable with this in this era. But Calvin, remember elsewhere, wishes that all would be saved. And I think Calvin uses this in his analysis to emphasize the difference between thoughtful disbelief and complete rejection of the faith. It kind of reminds me when people, when folks look at scripture with eyes of faith, um, uh, and And versus those who are just kind of expecting to be transformed by mm-hmm. reading it somehow, mm-hmm. but they don't have the eyes of faith to even begin it. yeah uh, there's this difference between doubt and faith, mm-hmm. so when Jesus joins the disciples, rejoins them, he restores that faith and gives them hope and for us, according to Calvin, it is a reminder that we should not be hasty for Christ to respond. <laughs> right? The dead of the night, right? Yeah, Jesus right. waits so long. Right. But even when we have faith that it can be undermined by fears from outside, we have to trust that Christ will come to our aid. And in the end, of course, Peter, in trying to walk on water, exhibits a lack of faith. And actually, Calvin's pretty critical of Peter. And he claims that this shows that Peter's dr- disbelief, which was a in front of a direct command by Christ
1: I mean I think um, he's I think he's not far off from what gene boring was talking about you know that that I if agree. that if Peter had really displayed faith he would have heard the word of Christ that you know take heart it is I don't be afraid and he wouldn't have asked to to well if it's you then prove it to me by letting me come and walk to yeah. you right yeah yeah
0: and I and like the fact led, that Calvin's
1: on that same page
0: <laughs> yeah it's interesting isn't it and yeah. of course it led to a rebuke of Peter but for for Calvin, it ultimately acted as a defining difference between fear of the storm um, and where they did not, where they did not have Christ immediately present, and the lack of faith when Christ was present. Right. So, right there's there's Jesus right there, and he still isn't believing. Nonetheless, yeah. Calvin also reminds us that he did save Peter and did not ultimately make fun of him for the lack of faith. Sure. So, um. So the action of saving Peter, despite his lack of faith, is part of Calvin's emphasis on Christ's compassion. So that's the next theme. So in this whole story, he does not make a big deal about the miracle of walking on the water at all, but rather Christ's compassion to come and save the disciples. And Calvin does um, not notes that he comes to this story after feeding the five thousand. Which should have shown the disciples Christ's divinity, but here he recognizes their humanity and their natural disbelief, and that's 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 big because I'm going to talk about Luther in a minute, and Luther has a different understanding of this. So I think it's important, uh, Calvin, especially when the Reformed tradition, the Calvinism, has become so critical of disbelief.
1: Yeah. Calvin well, I mean, and Calvin. and and you know, completely intolerant. Any any hint of disbelief means you right. are reprobate and not elect. Right. Yeah.
0: And yet here Calvin is saying, "Yep, yeah, this is part of the natural faith process." Sure. Love. I love it. Yeah. So, while we looked at Calvin in depth, i I want to reflect on some of the positions of other Reformation thinkers. All of them focused on this as faith, and again, not surprising in this age where we're talking about faith alone. What's interesting for Luther is all his medieval context, which we've talked about before. In general, Peter's faith is an exemplar for us. But in Luther's interpretation, Peter floundered when he forgot the word. It was a strike of evil that led to this. Hmm. for, For Luther, it's a reminder that faith is tender and subtle, and it's easy for us to stumble. But the cause of that stumbling is the devil right? Of that course, dualism. Of course,
1: with Luther. the, the devil, right, <laughs> to
0: take over. And uh, so while Luther serves this as an example, I think he's also holding the disciples to a high standard, as if it is not so much Peter losing faith, but forgetting the presence of Jesus. Uh, you I know, there's something
1: a, to be said for that, I think, about, about Peter, Peter forgetting the presence of Jesus. I think right. there's something to be said for that in this passage.
0: Yeah, right. I think his version of faith is described here is more tactile, a little more steeped in the physicality of presence rather than spiritual presence, which would be very, very typical of of Luther, right? Um, while he does not go into detail here, I think it reflects his Eucharistic theology. Sure. Remember that theology that that the bread and the and the wine are or have the, the the actual presence of Christ in and under the bread, right? Sure. In and through the bread and the wine. So the idea of the devil stepping in reflects that world, medieval worldview, then it also shapes him. So this, it's it's a little different space than we have with Calvin. And I think it, I think it through his, runs through his interpretation.
1: In the context of Matthew, though, I, I like the emphasis on the presence of Jesus because, you know, he, he is Emmanuel, God, who is with us, and he is the one who promises, I will be with you till the end of the age, at the end of the gospel. And and so, you know, uh, and here Jesus comes to them, and and Peter, that's not good enough for Peter. <laughs> you know? right, so, right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So finally, I want to address the commentary of Juan de Valdez, who is a Catholic theologian, although he's very much influenced by the uh, Reformation. And as I learned, he wrote many things that ended up on the banned book list. Now, I haven't talked about this too much, but remember, no division of church and state. So you're writing things Mm. that go against the official version that the state has, they are gonna be on a banned book list. this was commonplace and they in fact they would take entire printers, kick them out of town wow. for not riding the official state line. Yeah. So wow. it's pretty it's it's pretty typical. But that Juan Valdez is on to suggest that even though he's Roman Catholic and he's writing and living in Roman Catholic areas, his stuff is pushing it too far. So he's, He he's he's, he's having, got some
1: Protestant ideas.
0: Yes, yes. Mm. Um so he offers this unique perspective in noting that Peter's experience in faith was different than those in the boat. For Valdez, those in the boat believed in God because of the outward miracle, but did not follow, whereas Peter's was, quote, of divine inspiration and revelation. So, and
1: so in other words, like, what Peter did was what the other, the others should have done. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so for Peter, it was inspired faith that led him to follow. Uh-huh. So about so he's kind of making strata out of the faith experiences, right? That some faith is more worthy than others. Mm. And I think it actually kind of coincides with his Roman Catholic background. Um, Yeah, just kind of a fun, different view that you see. And I think I'm hoping you see that again. The the lens these people come at impacted by by this this broader theological uh, underpinnings that they have. So very. Very fascinating. Yes,
1: it is. Thanks, Christy.
0: Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. Uh, Alan and I, during our break, we're talking about lots of challenges with this passage. In particular is getting the congregation to kind of move beyond a literalism that takes them into a place where they don't believe and into a place where this passage makes sense and is helpful in their, in their, in their growth of their faith. And, um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons that this particular one causes them, causes them stress. Um, and I think it really has to do with this idea of, well, you can't walk on water because, and if we talked about, that's probably not the real intention of this, that this is probably has a lot more story about it um, and has to do with, in Matthew's terms, faith. So I wanted Alan to kind of start and talk about how he's hoping to present this to his congregation.
1: Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, You know, I think, as I mentioned in in my segment, I think probably most people have approached this passage in preaching from the standpoint that um, getting out of the boat demonstrates faith. That Peter getting out of the boat demonstrates faith. And when he, quote unquote, took his eyes off Jesus and became frightened, that was his, that was his faltering. But I love the fact that that Calvin takes him to task for even getting out of the boat, right? <laughs> that, that, right. That, that he was challenging uh, the, the direct word of Jesus, um, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He didn't receive that. He didn't respond in faith to that direct word. And so, you know, I I just wonder how many sermons have been preached on this passage, that you know the title was "Get Out of the Boat" or the focus was "Get Out of the Boat," and uh, you know I I don't have um, I don't I don't have uh, a title uh, firmly in mind yet, but to some extent, I think the direction I want to take this is stay in the boat, stay in the boat, stay in the boat, and, yes. and, and really the focus is like in Matthew's gospel, the focus is. Continue the path of discipleship even when you doubt, even when you're afraid, especially when you're afraid, especially when you doubt, especially when the wind and the waves are averse. And and how many of us in, in the church aren't experiencing wind and waves, quote unquote, in our context, congregational context that right. are adverse, that are battering the ship of the boat, right? Right.
0: And, and right, so
1: right. um that's kind of the direction I'm going to take it. I'm going to talk about you know sort of staying with the path of discipleship, um, even when you feel like you know the situation is battering you down. Yeah, something like that.
0: Well, I think that is a, a, a very interesting take on it. Again, kind of takes that emphasis off of superhero Peter mm-hmm. and and really emphasizes the the, the faith that that we're called to have. And I really like that approach and I think it's a, a different way to listen to it.
1: Yeah, it's more um, of the day in and day out kind of approach to discipleship and faith, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, trying to get get people, and I, I think, um, you know, for me, I keep thinking about the, the reality of storm and darkness and fear. I'm not sure that's ever drawn out that much either. I'm not sure, of course, we're, we're in landlocked state so yeah, right. I think we, and i mentioned the dark as well right i mean right. this is at night yes intentionally that it's not light yet
1: it was a dark and, and stormy night on the water we should say
0: yes <laughs> which exactly. makes it even worse <laughs> right so you can't see things well you you can't even know where you're at in regards to the land or any, i mean everything is terrifying and so i i really love that's where it's scary and then.
1: yeah I think though that yeah. this addresses a reality in our churches that we—I think all of us are dealing with—and that is that, um, especially in um, the mainline denominations, we have failed when it comes to discipleship for the most part. Now there are mm-hmm. some churches that are that are outliers, but um, right. most of the churches we we were serving. Are are full of people, who if you ask them why do you attend this church, they would be hard pressed to give you an answer. Right. Other than, well, this was the, this was the church I was right. I was born in and grew up in, or this is just the church. You know, I'm always been I've always been a Presbyterian, right. or whatever, or
0: even or even that. Oh, well, people are nice. It's a good family. It's a nice mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. But they aren't thinking about it as a call in their lives. Right. They're not thinking about it like being in the boat in a dangerous storm. And They're not
1: thinking about it in terms of discipleship.
0: No, or, or, or really in claiming their own faith. And I think this rehearing sermon that Alan's proposing is a really hopeful way of getting people to 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 grasp that call in their lives, I mean, that I think there's space here to remind them that, that this story has space for doubt. This in, sure. within it itself, it's clued in there to recognize, hey, this is your human reality, but look, God is there. Yes, it's just it's got yes. a lot of promise that way, and I think yes. that rehearing is gonna trigger them a little differently. Instead of oh, get out of the boat, follow Peter, well, I'll...
1: Well and yeah. that's that's really where the reality of Christian faith comes down to is how do you live your life every day and do you do you do you put your faith into practice? How do you put your faith into practice mm-hmm. on a daily basis basis? but you know really where discipleship I think where the where the rubber meets the road to change the analogy from the storm is that you know it's are you going to trust God's presence. Are you going to trust Jesus um, and and line your life with with Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God right. in in everyday realities that you face? And we are we're I, all facing them. We're all facing I, these difficult times.
0: I think their answer is, I don't think their answer is no. I think their answer is they don't they don't really feel that call in their life. They haven't lived through the. Fear or they haven't lived through the storm mm-hmm. trust jesus and i well
1: they don't, don't know how to do how to it I, I don't think they know how to do it i don't think I they don't know think how they to don't. how to practice discipleship
0: i think you're right i think that's i think that's the key right there i don't think they know and i i don't i don't exactly always know why um except that i i was sharing um i'm going to show sunday a story um that i've been given permission to share about a uh, a man that is from South Sudan. I was hired, if you were hired, I didn't take any money for it, to be his teacher as he was learning English and becoming a, a, a certified, or excuse me, a commissioned lay pastor. And I laughed because I could teach this person no one, no one who had lost his entire family. Oh, wow. Who had every bit of money, yes. Made his way to the border to have every tiny bit of money or any possessions left taken from him um only to get to a refugee camp and the only thing he had coming out of that camp was a bible in his native language wow that was stamped pc usa wow and here was this person who that was smiled, and that's what
1: brought him to the presbyterian church
0: called smiled called me his good teacher and every time i bring up a biblical story He'd go, oh, oh, my good teacher, Christy, I know, I know. And he'd tell me the whole story. He knew every <laughs> yeah. nuance of yeah. those stories. And for him, they provided him the hope and the love of God. For him, discipleship really meant something. And he brought with him 100 plus people who had gone through the same thing. And they lived together in hope. And I don't know. I want everybody to under, and watch that community of love. Well, watch I, how they care for each other.
1: I mean, I, we've talked about this somewhat before, you know. We live in a culture that values comfort above all else, entertainment above all else. And it's hard to, to inspire people who value comfort and entertainment above everything else to live the life of discipleship. Here's a man who had every, every, even the ba- even his family, even his basic necessities, everything he had stripped away from him, all he had left was right. God. Right. And, and right. I, I, I really, I've said this before, I think on this podcast, but I really do wonder if that's what it's going to take to bring this culture back to God is for us to have some sort of catastrophic tragedy yeah. that is going to, basically force us all to the place where all we have is god i know i've been in that place myself more than once in my life where i think I, many I, of I,
0: us who called the ministry find ourselves in those places yeah. and 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 uh, you know then we turn and we're like okay god have, my life is in your hands
1: and that was the only choice I had. I couldn't do anything else in those situations. I had, right. I had no other resort but to turn to God and to say, you know, into your hands I commend my life. You know, right. you're the faithful God, and, and I'm going to trust you. And even though I said it with fear and trembling, even though I said it with a great deal of doubt, even though I said it with a great deal of anxiety, I kept saying that prayer day and night. You know, right. into your yep. hands I commend my life. You're the faithful God, right. and I'm going to trust you. You know, yeah. and and
0: yeah.
1: you know, going through that hard time, re, ha, those those experiences have developed have developed my faith. And I, you know, I'm I honestly I wouldn't wish it on anybody, and yet I know that it's almost impossible for faith to flourish without something like that.
0: I I think you're right. I think you're right, and in fact the way especially popular culture right now that is turning to religion that people aren't even they're like they're like just not even trying but then they're isolated and lost and hopeless. It's it's such a problem.
1: Well church um, church is just another service provider. You know yeah. we, we look at we look at all the institutions in our society as service providers and we're consumers of services. And church right. is just another service provider. And, and, you know, we, we come to church to, to have our children baptized, to get married, to, to um, confirm our church, to teach our ch- children the basics of the Christian faith, and then to conduct funerals when we die. And, and those yeah. are the services we turn to the church to, and we, and we don't really align ourselves with them, and we don't align ourselves with the faith, you know, in terms of committing ourselves to a community or committing ourselves to a lifestyle right. of right. discipleship, and as a people, that's where we are. And yeah, and I, again, exactly. I think I think it's that that's that that's the nature of of you know how does faith flourish in a culture? Uh, you know, in this in this culture of prosperity and comfort right. and entertainment, if that's what people are are focusing their lives on, that is that's not compatible with discipleship.
0: Well, and honestly, I think at the end of the day it's not fulfilling what they're hungering for right at at the end of the day i think they are craving something more they're craving to understand why am i here and when they when they are involved when spending all their time and they're distracted from their core call to be loved and to love god i think it's i think
1: it's a form of escape actually i
0: think so too yeah I think so, too.
1: But I think, you, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, the core call is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor yourself and follow Jesus exactly. in living that lifestyle.
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, Alan, thank you. This has been a fun discussion.
1: Yeah, thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word.
0: word.